You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. We're going to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's on page 1194. I'm going to read, um, well, I'm going to refer to the whole chapter, but read particularly from verse 11. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Amen. It's not easy to be a Christian today. Actually, it never was easy to be a Christian at any time, and it certainly wasn't in Paul and Timothy's time. It's also not easy being a Christian leader There's a kind of view in society that kind of everyone's a leader. Everyone's, um, you know, if you're a Christian, you're aiming for leadership. I think once you understand what leadership is and what it involves, then almost one of the qualities of being a leader is that you are very reluctant to do so. There's a famous story of John Knox across in St. Andrews. It's a great story um, that he was asked to go and preach And he said, no. So they forced him basically at gunpoint uh, to preach. Because he knew what was involved. He knew he was getting involved in a battle. I think times have changed a lot. Uh, Maybe they've changed since when I grew up. But when I grew up, if you were an elder in the church, that was considered to be a thing of great honor. In fact, some churches I knew seemed to have more elders on paper than they had congregations in the pews or people in the pews. It looked good on your CV. I wonder if you're filling out a CV just now or you're applying for university or something and you're asked to, you know, that dread thing, the personal statement, what do you say? I mean, it's such a strange thing for, at least for a Scottish Calvinist, you've got to talk about yourself and you've got basically to say how good you are. It doesn't, it's kind of difficult. But I mean, what do you put on your, on your CV? Do you say, uh, I, I teach in the Sunday school. I'm an elder. Would that help you in, in getting a job? I guess it depends what kind of job and who it is you'd be working for. But it is tough going. And in this letter, in 1 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy because things have got quite tough. And what he's doing, he's doing something that's directly applicable to us. He's encouraging Timothy and the local church to be gospel-centered, to be centered on the good news of Jesus Christ. And we have to keep reminding ourselves 
that that's what we are. We are gospel-centered. Throughout the letter, he uses personal testimony. He uses quite um, short sayings. He uses even poetry to emphasize that. But the whole letter itself, that we need the context in which we're to come, focuses on the historical work of Jesus Christ and how grace works in the life of a repentant sinner. And that's what the church is about. And so in this letter on issues to do with the health of the church, Paul has already spoken about misunderstanding of the law. He's spoken about gender roles. He's spoken about the goodness of physical creation. He's spoken about issues that he considers to be secondary and not worth having controversy about. And here in this section, he's just spoken about money because he recognizes that if you're in a position of leadership, money can be both a problem and a temptation. So the the message that he's saying for, for us is that the church is to be guarded with the gospel as well as to proclaim the gospel. It's to be guarded with the gospel and the leader is to develop their gifts, to watch out for themselves and constantly to be coming back to the good news of Jesus Christ. That's difficult. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're thinking, well, come on, you you become a Christian and then you get on with it and then you do things. Why do you need to keep going back? Do you keep forgetting? Yes, actually we do. And also, we need to apply the gospel and preach the gospel to ourselves over and over again because it is such amazing and such good news that you keep repeating it. I, I don't know if you've ever had a letter which was really, really good news. Just really, really great news. Um, and you know that news. Uh, we've had a couple of guys in the congregation come out with albums. Now let's suppose that all of a sudden it went to the top of the iTunes chart and then they suddenly get a Crawford or uh, Simon gets, gets a letter saying, uh, we've delighted to tell you that your album is now number one in the album charts. I will guarantee you that they will look at that letter once. They won't need to look at it again but they will keep looking at it again because it's such good news for them. If uh, I'm not suggesting this is the way you would do it, but if you were a young man and you wanted to propose, you did it in writing, at least don't do it by email, um, you did it with a nice fancy letter and pen, and imagine you got a letter back from your intended saying, you are so gorgeous, of course, I accept. I'm delighted to spend my life with you. That's getting pinned on your wall. And you're going to read it a thousand times because it's good news. Well, I think that's very much, in a sense, like the gospel, except magnify that a thousand times even more. So, with that in mind, we look at these verses about what it is to be a believer, to be a, a woman of God, to be a man of God, to follow God, Uh, It's in particular in terms of those who are leaders in the church, but I think it's for all of us who are believers. And if you're not a believer, I hope you'll see something of what it is to be a believer. By definition, because of of time, I'm not going to go into great detail in this. And some of you will think, oh, I kind of know this. Yeah, but knowing it and applying it are two different things. And I found it quite helpful to myself just to be reminded of these things. The first is a very simple thing. We are to flee. 
you men of God, flee from all this. And the all this is what comes before. <coughs> the false doctrines, the unhealthy interest and controversies and quarrels, the envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of corrupt mind. Those who think godliness is a means to get rich and so on. And Paul says very simply to Timothy, there are some things you just get away from, you flee from. It's like in the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. When she attempted to seduce him, he just ran out of the house. He got away. He didn't stay to argue. He didn't stay to negotiate. He ran away. And there are some things that we just need to get away from. Evil, the love of money, false teaching, envy, fighting, and slander. One of the marks of being a Christian is that we turn away. But we also pursue. We run away from things. We run two things. And he lists them there as righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. It's an interesting list. Righteousness is that state of mind that's in harmony with God's law. It's what is right, what is good. Sometimes we talk about right and wrong and people talk about how do we know what right and wrong is? How do we know what good is? I was at a meeting this week where that question was asked. And one person said, well, God is good. And other people laughed and said, well, that's the, no, 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 that's not the standard. How, but actually, that is the standard. That is how we know what right and wrong are. It's not just the conditioning of our culture. It's not just what, we, what we've been brought up with. It's not just what we reason with our own minds. God is good and the giver of all things good. And if we are to be Christians, we are to pursue righteousness. It doesn't come naturally to us. We are not naturally right people. We have a, a tendency to skew away from God's standards, a tendency within ourselves in eight to move us away from that. And if we follow that righteousness, that leads to godliness and faith and love and endurance. They belong together. Titus 2 verse 1, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Because you just, you keep going. One of the difficulties in leadership is when someone becomes a leader and they try it for about a few weeks and then they say, no, that's me, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I've had enough, I'm finished. You keep going, you endure. Endurance itself is the fruit of hope. It's the grace to bear up under adversities. Faith here is used in the sense of uh, the, the subjective idea of it, which we mean is it's an active reliance on God and his promises. It's saying, Lord, I'm keeping following you even though I can't see. I'm keeping following you even though things are tough. And then there's this gentleness. Strangely enough, 
this idea of pursuing righteousness and godliness and faith and love and endurance and gentleness. It's the only time this particular word is used in the Greek Bible. Other words for gentleness are used, but this particular one. And I think part of it is because when you keep going, when you love, when you endure, when you trust God in the darkest storm, it takes away aggressiveness and arrogance and enables you to be much more gentle knowing your own weakness and empathizing with other people. So we flee, we pursue, we fight. It's uh, in Scots, say it's a serfecht, it's a sore fight, it's a hard fight, it's a tough fight. And the imagery used here is that of a contest in terms of games, the agony and the effort associated with that. Hebrews 12.1, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. It's the idea of the Christian life as it does involve effort. It's this paradox if it's the grace of God and the love of God and the mercy of God that enables us to live as believers. But it's tough going sometimes. Often it's tough going and it involves effort. Philippians 1.30, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now here I still have. And he's saying you've got to fight the good fight of the faith. And I think the article there is important. The previous use of the word faith is, it is subjective. It's looking towards God and trusting God. The faith here is carries this idea of something that's objective, something that's concrete. Instead of quarreling about words, which he's just been talking about, he's saying you've got to focus and fix on what God has given, the faith. It's why if you want to undermine the Christian church and you want to undermine the faith, that's exactly what you do. You undermine the key teachings of God's word. And that today is why so many people in Scotland and in the United Kingdom are in such confusion in the church because the faith has been undermined. And if you ask people to define what the faith is, they wouldn't be able to do so. One of the key purposes of the elders is to ensure that the church holds on to the faith. And that's a battle that is worth fighting. There are fights that are not worth having. One of the things in leadership you learn fairly quickly, um, otherwise you're going to get really badly burned, is there are fights that are worth having and there are fights that are not worth having. A bad leader is somebody who thinks they've always got to get their, their own particular way. A good leader is someone who realizes, nah, this one, it's not worth fighting about. And what Paul is telling Timothy is, you've got to hold to the faith and you've got to fight for the faith. It is a spiritual battle primarily and that's why we use the spiritual weapons we have given, been given as in Ephesians 6 but especially the weapon of prayer. We fight and then we grasp. 
Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. There's a change to something that's, the verbs that are used before are kind of continuous. You keep on doing. But this one's here is different. He's saying, grasp it. Hold on to it. And what is it? The it there is eternal life. And that's an extraordinary thing. Because it is a, it's a future thing. We're, we're looking forward to being in glory. But I think what Jesus says in John 3.16 is hugely significant. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And I think what Paul is saying here to Timothy is you hold on, grasp this fact that you now have eternal life. It's not that you're hoping to get through life and that when you die, everything's assessed and then you either are or you are not saved. He's saying you've got that now. You now have eternal life. So that when you die, actually, it doesn't make that much of a difference, at least not to your salvation. The life of sharing in God's holiness, in God's love, in God's peace, and God's joy, that has been given to you now. You are still in this world where there is that conflict with that, and there is a conflict within yourself. But grasp, lay hold of the fact that you now have eternal life. You're scared of death, you've got eternal life. That's what makes a phenomenal difference emotionally, psychologically, and in every way. He then says, confess. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And the idea of the good confession is the beautiful confession. It is kind of like if I go back to the marriage analogy. You ask someone to marry you and they say, yeah, I will. And they stand at the front in the church here and they're asked, do you commit yourself to this person for the rest of your life? And they say, yes, I do. There's something, even the hardest heart, when we do a wedding in here, even the hardest heart, you can see just a wee tear in the glass eye, you know, as, as that happens. And I mean, most of us are blubbering away. Well, why? Because it's not just the romance of the occasion. It's beautiful. It's extraordinarily beautiful. And here's the idea of confession. It's not confession as in, you know, being tortured by the Spanish Inquisition. Confess. Go on. Confess. It's something different. It's something that is extraordinarily beautiful. And Timothy's confession is surely this, that in a hostile world, he had decided to follow the faith of his mother and his grandmother and to follow Jesus Christ. And the great example that's given here is of Jesus himself. He's the faithful witness. He made the good confession. And what was that? He stood firm and by word and deed confessed that God is Lord, confessed that he lived for God. Timothy has a calling and a commission to testify to. I charge you, I charge you, says Paul, make this confession. Some churches, well, the Anglican church in particular, will, will talk about a confession when you're 
baptized as a child and then 14 years old, you make your confession. If you're a Christian, you are being charged through God's word here and now to confess Jesus Christ now, today, tomorrow, the whole of next week, next month. Every moment that you have on this earth is a confession of the grace and glory of God until Christ returns. Blameless and pure, he says, without spot or blame. Philippians 2, 15, 16, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Your confession is not that you are a Christian. Your confession is not your membership in the church. Your confession is that God is God. Your confession is about Jesus Christ, that you are following Jesus Christ. Who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the king? This week, there were a couple of Christians in Pakistan who were burnt to death because of their Christianity. We're not going to be asked to do that. But we are going to be in situations where people will mock Jesus. We are going to be in situations where we'll be tempted to compromise our faith. We are going to be in situations where people will look at us and go, you don't really belong to that group, do you? You don't really believe in that God. Keep your faith to yourself. Keep your religion to yourself. And Paul says to Timothy, no, make the good confession. And it's all tied in with a word that's not used, but I'm using it just to summarize this last bit, that it, we have to glorify God. The whole point of all of this, of, of pursuing righteousness and fleeing evil and fighting the good fight of faith and making the good confession, the whole point of it all is that we glorify God. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17 says this, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Our purpose in this church is to glorify God. Your purpose in your life is to glorify God. You see, we, we glorify ourselves far too easily. We like to sit, say how good we are. But our purpose is not to point to how good we are. It's not to point to our attractive qualities and it's not to, to go the opposite way if you like, to wallow in self-pity. Our purpose is always to point to God and to point to Jesus and that's why again and again and again we need to remind ourselves who God is because it is not as if every moment of every day, most of us anyway, are walking along with an acute consciousness of the glory of God. That's why we come and we worship, because we, we are being reminded of the glory of God. And Paul uses three things that I think are just wonderful, or four things actually. He says he's blessed, and the blessedness of God consists in this, not just happiness, but his perfection, his absolute perfection, his delight in himself. Now, we can be blessed in that way because we are corrupted and if we delight in ourselves it just becomes hubris it just becomes arrogance it becomes selfish and indulgent and wrong 
But God is blessed within himself. And to know him is to be blessed. And blessed as well because he has perfect peace. He is the one who is peace. And he already has that. God doesn't suffer angst. God's not worried about what's going to happen in the future or concerned about how things are going to pan out. He is blessed. And he is because he is also sovereign. Jude 25, to the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. They will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Revelation seventeen fourteen. Paul says to Timothy, you make the good confession because the person you're confessing is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And nobody but nobody comes anywhere near him. He alone is immortal. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. From him comes life, the never-failing fountain. Not just existence, but the well that never runs dry. He gives life to everything. It's interesting, we've just done an amazing thing, haven't we, as a human race. Landed uh, a washing machine, apparently, they said, uh, on a comet traveling at 40,000 miles an hour. And, and it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful uh, technology. It's wonderful what human beings can do. But sometimes when we build the Tower of Babel, we become quite hubristic in things. We say, aren't we marvelous? There's no one like us. We are like God. And I'm intrigued that one of the great things just now is, oh, this is, now we'll find where life comes from. Really? We know where life comes from. Life ultimately comes from the source of life, God himself. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. We speak about euthanasia. The word that's used is athanasia. And athanasia is so much better than euthanasia. Athanasia is deathlessness. There is no possibility of death. There is no death. It's the fullness of life. It's life without death. Second Peter 1 4 says, Through these has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. God alone is deathlessness. Everything else dies. Everyone else dies. But Paul says to Timothy, you confess because you have been given this eternal life. And then he talks about this wonderful unapproachable light who lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. In him was life and that life was the light of men. We need it. We need the sun to see, but we can't look at the sun. We need God to see, but we can't look at God. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God and Savior of Israel. Isaiah forty-five fifteen. How great is God beyond our understanding. The number of his years is past finding out. If you want to know how great is God, consider the fact that we have landed 
on a nearby comet traveling at 40,000 miles an hour. We've had to go millions of miles to do that. Job looks at the stars, billions of galaxies. He looks at the stars extending millions and millions of miles. And he says, these are but the outer fringe of your power. Our God lives in unapproachable light. And yet we're told this, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. You see what Paul is doing with Timothy? He's teaching him about money. He's teaching him about um, drinking. He's teaching him about illness. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your, your stomach and your frequent illnesses. He's teaching him about people who teach false doctrine. He's teaching about how women should dress. He's teaching about how men should pray. He's teaching about how the widows should be looked after. He's teaching about what the elders in the church and the deacons in the church should be like. But he does all of that teaching in the context of God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Paul wants God to be honored and he wants his might to be seen. And that's what we want. And that's what we long for. And that's what we pray for. And that is the purpose of this church. And it's the purpose of the leadership. And it's the purpose of us all. To glorify God through the gospel. That's why we're here. Man's chief end is to glorify God. And enjoy him forever. And I think I'll leave it with that particular question. Or with a particular question. What really is your purpose? What really is your aim, your main aim? You've got lots of secondary aims, things that you want to do. You've got your to-do list. You've got your bucket list before you finish on this earth. But what's your primary purpose in life, your primary goal? There's nothing that beats or makes any sense compared with this one. Flee, fight, pursue, take hold of the eternal life, make the good confession. Because there's actually no one or anything that compares with that. We're very thankful to have uh, leaders in the church for whom that is their aim. But please pray for them because it's very easy to be swayed away from that. We need to have a leadership in the church, including myself, whose aim and purpose is to focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ and to glorify him in proclaiming it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Bless it to us. Enable us to know who you are, to know that, and to see the God who is unseeable, the God who lives in unapproachable light. Enable us to know Jesus. O Lord, may we glorify your name, not for our sakes, not for our names, but to your name, and for your sake, be the praise and the glory. For we ask it in that name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.